Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Gabe Carson and Michael Darnowski. Hi, welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Over the past eight months we've been on, the Politics Guys has built up a solid core of regular listeners. We really appreciate your support. Knowing that you're out there makes all the work we put into this show worthwhile. We'd like to bring the Politics Guys to an even larger audience, and to do that, we need your help. If you haven't already posted a review of the show on iTunes or Stitcher, it would be great if you could take a minute to do that. Multiple positive reviews will definitely help us to attract new listeners. But the best recommendations are personal recommendations. And so if you enjoy the show, we hope you consider telling your friends on Facebook and Twitter. They can find us at our website, politicsguys.com, which has every episode as well as links to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Again, thanks for listening. And now, on to this week's show. Our top story this week is Afghanistan, where on Thursday, President Obama announced that U.S. troops would remain in the country until the end of his term, which essentially is an abandonment of his uh, previously stated goal of ending all U.S. military involvement in that country during his presidency. What did you think about this, Jay? Well, it's, I, you know, again, I, it's a funny way to put it. I guess he, he gave up on giving up. Yeah. Um, no, I, I am. Uh, I, I think it's actually a good idea um, to some extent. Again, I, I'm not I don't like the idea of saying uh, they'll remain until the uh, end of my uh, my presidency. I'd, I'd rather say they'll remain uh, right. <laughs> or they'll right. remain until they're not needed anymore. Uh, but no, I, I think this is a this is a good thing. I mean, would it be great if we didn't have to have troops anywhere uh, in the world? Yes. But uh we kept troops and uh, we still keep troops in South Korea. We've uh, kept presences in Germany and Japan for 50 some years. Uh, and I, I think this is, this is a, a smart thing to do. Uh, and it's, it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, I, my only question is, is 10,000 enough? I'm not a military guy to know that. Uh, but after what happened in Iraq uh, with the complete pullout, I, I think it's important that we main, maintain a presence. Yeah, and, and military analysts seem to be more or less unified in saying that 10,000 isn't really enough to make a huge difference, but it uh, indicates that we have some sort of a commitment. It doesn't seem like – see, this is my problem. It seems like we should either go big or go home, and there's really not the political will to go big, and I get that, certainly. We've been in Afghanistan now for 14 years. Uh, it's tough to figure out total costs, but its cost is somewhere around $700 billion. And that goes up by around $4 million every single hour we're there. And so it's a lot of money, but I feel like we've had this kind of in-between policy with these arbitrary deadlines for cutting the number of troops. And it just it just seems like we don't have the will to do uh, a really good job. And I understand why we would have qualms about that, but I, I just feel like Obama's policy in, in Afghanistan and in Iraq has just been... And uh, Syria. What's uh, and, Okay, <laughs> right. Has, has just been either essentially been not enough. It's like he doesn't willing to truly commit, and I get after the, the disaster, the tragedy of the Bush years, why someone would be reticent, but this is no good either, I don't think. 
Yeah, uh, half measures, I think, are never a, a good thing in, in foreign policy, especially when you're dealing with this area of the world and what what we have to show there. Uh, and this is this is not dissimilar to what we had to show in, in Southeast Asia uh, in the 60s and 70s is a commitment to our allies that we're going to stand with them. Uh, because otherwise, I, you know, if, again, we talked about this last week. If you're an Afghan rebel, if you're a Syrian rebel, uh, you know, where, where are you going to be? Are you going to be with the uh, guy who's sort of, well, I'm, you know, sort of in, but when the going gets tough, I'm out. Or are you going to be with the uh, Vladimir Putin who's all in? So, yeah. Well, I think part of the problem is that these countries that we commit to are horrifically corrupt. And uh, it, it makes it difficult to build any sort of a real relationship and to kind of set them out on their own. Uh, Transparency International rates the corruption of uh, almost every country in the world. They have 175 they rank. Out of that 175, Afghanistan ranked 172nd. Hmm. So, I mean, who beat them? You know, you know that not too many. Uh, Iraq, <laughs> Iraq was up there at 170. So, I mean, but these are our partners, you know, and trying to essentially nation build with there's when there's so little to build from i just think is it requires a lot more than we're willing to commit and maybe more than we should commit but it it's i don't think anyone anyone who expects us to somehow make something of this with the level of commitment we have i think is uh, has unrealistic expectations and it seems like in part that's president obama well, I, I won't disagree with you there, and I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll lay my uh, neocon internationalist cards on the table um, and say, listen, I, you know, I, I think this is something you need presidential leadership for, and you need someone who will make a case as to why we ought to do this, as to why we ought to be, uh, whether we call it nation building, whether we call it uh, policing, whether we call it uh, security force, whatever. Um, I think we have to look realistically and say this is the challenge, and we either get out altogether, uh, which to my view is is not sustainable because, you know, 9-11. I mean, I think that's sort of the, the answer is if you you can't just leave this alone because it'll it'll come back one right. way or another. Uh, or or you you make uh, a big uh, a big commitment. And uh, uh, I would be in favor of the big commitment. And I know not all conservatives agree with that. Uh, not all Republicans agree with that. But uh I think just from from a plain international power politics standpoint, uh, that's what you need to do. Because if we don't, uh, the Russians or someone else or ISIS or someone else will step in to, to fill that vacuum. And uh, it's likely the, uh, the the corrupt folks of uh, Afghanistan and, and many of these other places, uh, sort of like like uh, Johnson said of the, the South Vietnamese, um, you know, yeah, he's a, a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. Sure. Uh, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, you you uh, you need to look at this with sort of a realism that uh, you don't have, you're you're not going to get necessarily a uh, a George Washington uh, uh, coming out of these places. Maybe you do at some point, uh, but more but likely than not, you don't. And yeah. I mean, you know, you mentioned, I think you mentioned Korea before, and that obviously was a decades long commitment, and it took quite a while before you know, before things stabilize there. And so I, again, it, it just seems like it's a, it, it's a half measure policy that all it's going to do is waste billions of dollars that we could spend much better. So I think it's kind of a penny wise pound foolish sort of thing here. Well, here's, you know, here's something else that, that 
you know, every once in a while we get the chance to dig in a little bit deeper and, and understand the limita- limitations of polit- politics and politicians. Um, but you can make the, the the good argument that, listen, these places need, and I don't know whether you, if you don't want to call it nation building, but introduction to and the building of democratic institutions, uh, because that's what you need to have the uh, George Washington type leader, uh, or let's say a, a, even a Gandhi or someone like that, or a, a Mandela or, or someone like that. They, there needs to be a foundation of they get what uh, democracy is uh, and, and have some connection with those values. And sure, it, it, I think you're right. That takes, that takes generations. And, and you're, you're talking about, I think people tend to not understand, or some people don't understand that there's a difference between building institutions and plopping down an institutional structure and expect people are just going to go along with it and understand it, which is more or less been our MO and it's, it's failed. Oh, no, and I think, I think that's right. But, but I don't know that there's any other way to do it. You know, for example, in Iraq, I mean, uh, right, do people really get the whole election I- idea? Uh, and I don't mean to, to sell them short, but what I think what, what we're talking about is something that's a little bit deeper. Uh, you know, in our when we had our American Revolution, we'd had essentially a, a, a constitutional monarchy right. uh, government for hundreds of years. And we had sort of local governments with some pretty strong democratic traditions democratic slash republican traditions uh of things like freedom of speech and minority uh rights and and political minority rights yeah uh, and so forth and and people got it so it wasn't a huge step it wasn't difficult to have the the folks that we had the john adamses the george washingtons emerge out of that that tradition right and uh, i think in this is law that sort of thing it, it just it just does not apply in that part of the world where right. you don't have that sort of tradition. I think this is a case where even though I tend to come at things from the left and, and you do from the right, where we both share sort of a fundamentally conservative in a traditional sense view that you can't just impose things on people, that government has to be effective, has to kind of come up organically from the people, from, from the ground up. And, and I think we both agree on that. And that's yep. clearly something we don't see in Iraq or Afghanistan or really a lot of places. And, and so it's, it, it's embedded in our, in our culture. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. And more than, more than just a, and it's, again, this is sort of an Edmund Burke type, uh, uh, type argument. One of my heroes. And one of your heroes. And, um, you know, I, I, but you know, how do you, how do you implant that somewhere? Uh, first of all, the question is, can you implant it somewhere? Um, you know, there was there was a book. This was back during the the um, Iraq uh, War. Uh, Nathan Sharansky, um, and there was one of the uh, one of my and I, I'm the title is escaping me right now. This is terrible. We can find out and put it in the. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, but but I mean, his argument was that if you took out the dictator, that essentially all people really want to be free, all people really want uh, this sort of democratic, republican, uh, western-style liberal democracy, and that the problem is if you have these hmm. bad guys, dictators, what have you, uh, once you eliminate them, that this will arise organically. I don't know if I and, buy that, but okay. Well, that's that's the thing. At the time, I I was sort of reading it and saying, this sounds really good. Man, I hope he's right. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. In practice, I I don't know that that it's happened, or maybe it is just a matter of it's it's a it's a long game and it it hasn't happened yet. 
Yeah, well, I think, yeah, we need to play, a, we need to be considering a much longer game than it seems like we are now. And these sort of arbitrary deadlines for cutting down troops, I think they do nothing but nothing but harm us. And unfortunately, I don't see a whole lot of good coming out of this in the long term, just more wasted money and more wasted lives. And that's a, that's a real, a real tragedy. So, Amen. okay. Uh, anyway, on to another, well, some would say a real tragedy, at least if you're, if you're Lincoln Chafee, I guess. Uh, the Democrats had their first debate on Tuesday night where Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders were joined by three non-entities. Uh, fairly popular thing, actually. It averaged uh, 15.3 million viewers, making it the highest rated Democratic debate ever. In fact, the previous highest rated debate was in 2008 when Clinton and Obama were going were going uh, squaring off and that had only around 10 million viewers, 10 or 11 million viewers. So fairly popular, though not nearly as popular as the Republican debates. But of course, there is no Democratic Trump. So, you know. Right. Well, no, but but Gosh darn it, Bernie, Bernie Sanders is uh, is trying. Um, he, he tried. I, I love what I, I generally don't agree with Charles Crothammer, the conservative columnist for the Post, but mm-hmm. he described it as saying that Hillary's up against three ciphers and one endearing, gesticulating, slightly unmoored old man. And I thought, well, that's that's not too bad actually, you know. So right, I, I sort of like the the Bernie. It's like the Bernie Sanders get the hell off my lawn. Yes, uh, yes, like, he uh, does party. have that going for him. <laughs> I think that's what they should call it, sir. Yeah, someone I recently uh, uh, compared him to uh, just angry grandfather, and and that's that's what I thought is the get the hell off my lawn, you, yeah. you well, rich you know, people, you one percent. Yeah, well, you know, the New York Times really liked this debate. Um, they thought it they they contrasted it with the Republican debate, and they said you know it was a debate for they called it a debate for grownups. They remarked on the civility of it, and so forth. And it was interesting. I read that, then I read the Wall Street Journal, and they said well. The debate basically shows that no one's willing to take on Hillary and it shows how weak the candidates are, which, of course, is made actually a lot more sense to me. And here's it's weird. I kind of find myself uh, agreeing with the journal over the New York Times, which doesn't happen too often. But it's a sign of growth. Oh, yeah, it's a sign of something. Uh, but essentially that, of course, it was more civil because there's only one real candidate in this debate. You know, Hillary Clinton's going to be the nominee. It's not going to be a 50 point landslide. It might be a 20 point landslide. But. Even so, uh, this debate was essentially, I think, meaningless. Uh, I don't. It's not going to change anything. Uh, so, but uh, but in any case, it you know it brought out it brought out some interesting things. Like for instance, Bernie Sanders, who's reliably liberal on almost every issue except for gun control. Yes, and he got nailed by Hillary on that. And and one of the reasons why, though, and I don't know if this came out that often, is that. Uh, Vermont is uh, uh, Vermont is a state that has a lot of households that have guns. In fact, uh, if you if you map out the rank the states in terms of percentage of households with a gun, Vermont's the first non-southern or western state in that list. And so he's like any good senator's doing, you know, playing to his constituency. Yeah. So, but uh, Bernie Sanders is going. How's, how's the crime rate in Vermont? What's that? How's the crime rate? In you know, I, I don't know exactly. I think, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't be able to say, I don't have any stats for me, but I'm guessing from what you're saying that it might not be all, <laughs> all that high is the point you're probably trying to make. So, yes, um, yes. Yes, yes. So. I'm, I'm saying the, the guns and death correlation, it doesn't necessarily add up. But that's, not, that's, not in that's every a, case. a different day. Yeah. So also uh, in, in news this week, uh, kind of related to the president. One more, oh, yeah, please, one more go Bernie Sanders thing. And this is, I, I, I did think was, was really sort of genius uh, if you mentioned at this way. Uh, James Durando of the Wall Street Journal 
uh, noted this. Uh, Bernie's statement of the uh, I'm sick and tired of hearing about Hillary's damn emails, which drew just wonderful applause and even right. applause for Clinton and saying, gee, thanks so much. Um, I don't think she really got the subtext of what he was saying. Which was? Uh, and it, which was, look, if you're sick and tired of hearing about Hillary's damn emails, vote for me. Uh, and that mm, was okay. really sort of a genius. I think a of, lot of people didn't get that subtext. Okay. No, they don't get it yet, but but they will. <laughs> it might be uh, too little, too late, maybe. But, but they will. Uh, no, I, let's put it. It's always going to be too little, too late. Because, yeah, Clinton's going to win. There's no doubt about it. I'm I'm just saying as far as a, a clever political uh, bit of political jujitsu. Uh, gotcha. I thought I thought it was great. And it, it sort of took away from the. Uh, it made me think of less of him as the crazy, yelly old man, and uh, maybe a little bit sharper. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, the other thing is, maybe, maybe Taranto and I are just reading too much into it, um, and and maybe he is, you know, sick and tired of it, and and you know, but you know, we'll we'll see. Yeah. yeah. But I want I want to give credit where credit's due. Wow, you me me agreeing with the Journal over the Times, you giving credit to Bernie Sanders. This is really bizarro world uh, podcast today. So. Yeah, anyway, uh, kind of related news, the third quarter financial reports for the presidential candidates were released by the FEC earlier this week. Had some interesting stuff. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton leads everyone with having raised uh, almost $30 million for this quarter, the last three months, followed very closely by Bernie Sanders. And then the first Republican on that list is Ben Carson, all the way down at uh, 208 million dollars. And then uh, in fourth place, you have Bush at 13.4, Cruz at 12.2. Then there's a huge drop after that. But one of the things that really interested me was Donald Trump raised $3.9 million. And the question that occurred to me is, who's giving money to Donald Trump? Well, I mean, it, it, it could be Donald Trump is giving money to Donald no, Trump. I, I, no, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's non-Donald Trump sources, which made me think, I want to know who these people are, and I want to find, this This should be some sort of basic voting test or something like that. If you've given money to Donald Trump, I really don't want you to vote. I, I think you might not be uh, informed well enough to be a, a reasonable voter. So anyway, I'd love to well, know who I, these people Well, I think are. it would be curious to find out, too, because, you know, as I've said, I, I talk to a whole lot of Republicans a lot of time. And uh, I, I haven't met one yet who would would admit to being a Trump supporter. But they're out there, clearly. I guess they're out there. Yeah, I mean, that, what I'm saying is, I, I I don't know that they're they're not in the traditional Republican circles. Would be my right. guess. So. And you know, it, it, there's an interesting distinction between well, the, the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats tend to be better, and they, they, this data suggests that they are a lot better at raising money through the traditional process. Now, individual donations are capped, I believe it's $2,700, but Republicans are a lot better at raising money through super PACs, which they're not officially aligned with the campaigns, but people can donate an unlimited amount. And the data I see says that uh, uh, Republican-allied super PACs raise something like $234 million compared to $17 million for the for the Democrats. Right. So, well, it makes sense because the big money people tend to be on the Republican side uh, and uh, the one percent and so forth. Whereas the little guy, the Democrats are definitely the, the little, party. The little guys, the little guys in Hollywood. Well, uh, the little guys like the, you know, the the hedge fund folks who the little guys who give to the Clinton campaign or the Clinton Foundation. Um, 
Well, the little guys, the little guys in Silicon Valley. There are still a lot more of the little guys. You don't meet any of those criteria. But in any case, um, another thing I think that's that's interesting is it gives us a sense of these these numbers. Give us a sense of who might be the next uh, people to drop out of the race because there are a few folks who didn't do so great in terms of uh, in terms of their fundraising here. Right. Like for instance, uh, uh, well Donald Trump, but he doesn't really count, right? Um, right. But uh, John Kasich hasn't done nearly that well. He hasn't he hasn't raised a lot of money. He hasn't spent a lot of money. I'm not exactly sure what he's doing. Um, I think he's spending a lot of time in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah it, is my understanding, and and he's been doing well in New Hampshire. I, I haven't seen polls like this week, but but last I saw, he he had he was second place in New Hampshire. Uh, now he could have he could have slipped from that. Uh, I'd say he still probably leads. The other, you know, governor type candidates there. I imagine he's ahead of Christie. I Slightly, yeah, ahead. yeah. Um, you know, those guys. Walker's out. Um, uh, you know, I think I think the Jindal's non-entity. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and he's probably ahead of Ted Cruz in New Hampshire. Uh, Cruz so, I mean, has I raised think yeah, as, a lot more as, money. If you looked at the the um, after the non-establishment candidates, after you got through your Trumps, Carsons, and Fiorinas. I, uh, there's probably Rubio and then there's, there's Kasich, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. there. So I, I think he's, I think he's still hanging in there, but, but yeah. And, and to some extent his appeal is, is not going to necessarily be money. His appeal is Ohio. Right. So. Do, you, do you think he's, do you think he's angling for a, a VP nominee or a VP not or what, or what? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it could be my sense is, you know, it's one of these. If you if, if you say you know you have a one in a thousand chance of becoming president, um, you sort of think, why the hell not? You know what I mean? Why? <laughs> you could say I ran for president. No, I, sure, I, yeah. I, I think he is. I mean, I think he's he's aiming for the top spot. But I think I, uh, there's also some realism there that if he doesn't, um, you know, there may be other good things for him uh, still. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think what, what what's really surprising is uh, how. Rand Paul's campaign just is absolutely cratered. He he only raised uh, two point five million dollars. Yeah, so less than less than Kasich, less than Christie. I mean, he's just. There was a time not too long ago where he was considered a top tier candidate, but I think he's probably going to be the next person to pull out of the campaign, and I I, I think that's going to happen relatively soon. I don't know your local listeners. Listeners should remember we didn't think he was a top tier candidate. Nope, no, we never did uh, when we talked about this last year. And we said, yes, he's got this little libertarian sort of wing, and there will be sort of uh, – but that's going to be it. And I think uh, the folks who are on the um, – I don't know, for lack of a better term, we'll call it the intellectual, ideological uh, – the ideological purity type type side, um, you know, people who like talking about the gold standard and right. uh, whatnot. I mean that, The nuts. Uh, yeah. And, well, I wouldn't say nuts. Okay, I, I, I will. say the – uh, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's economic issues and so forth, but it is, it's a sort of the refined air sort of, uh, kind of debating on how many angels can dance on the head yeah. of a pin sort of thing. Um, those type conservatives are choosing Cruz over, uh, Paul. Right. Right. So I, and I, I think, I think mostly cause Cruz probably just does it better. Yeah, I think you're absolutely so. So yeah, I think it was just just a matter of time now for Rand Paul. Hey, Jake, you want to talk about marijuana? Whoa, 
You know, big yeah, issue absolutely. in Ohio. And in fact, uh, as you know, we're both we're both Ohio residents. Sixteen days from now, we'll get a chance to vote on this. Ohio may become the fifth state to legalize marijuana for recreational purposes. Purposes uh, right. joining. Let's see, they'd be Washington, Oregon, Colorado, and Alaska. I believe, and there are uh, 18 states uh, that have medical marijuana. 18 states in DC, and so which, which is which for look, look. Let's be realistic. That's essentially recreational purposes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you like the system, for example, in California, where you can pretty much walk in and tell them, yeah, you sometimes you get glaucoma. Yes, I get, <laughs> I get a little, yeah, ennui. I feeling ennui. I need yeah, but. Uh, it's interesting how Ohio's done it or is trying to do it. There are uh, two initiatives on the ballot, uh, issue two and issue three. And uh, you're probably a, a little bit more familiar with this with me. I don't know. Do you want to uh, kind of explain how this works exactly? Well, it's it's a weird sort of situation where the, the uh, pro pot folks are trying to put in, um, legalize it, but have it make it even, make it even better. Sort of, sort of like the best part of prohibition um, Sort of like all the all the corruption of prohibition, uh, but without the actual prohibition. Um, right. Okay. And we it, limit, where it's limited to a, a monopoly of, of ten growers that can supply uh, marijuana. And and now I'm guessing that they did it that way, so that way those ten growers would put in the money to support the campaign to legalize. Exactly. Well, okay. it's actually those couple growers came up with the idea of, of hey, wouldn't it be great if uh, marijuana were legal, and then. You know, sort of the second idea of, hey, man, wouldn't it be great if they could only buy it from us? Yeah. Um, so it's it's sort of like, yeah, drug dealers fighting for turf, um, but what they're doing it through the ballot. political system. Yeah. Uh, so then some some folks in Ohio um, put on put out another issue, which happens to be issue two instead of issue three. It ranks higher just because of uh, when signatures came in and so forth. It mm-hmm. says no, nothing in the Ohio Constitution. Uh, you can't create a monopoly in the Ohio Constitution. So if if we did have issue two pass and issue three pass, it would be we'd sort of have a, a, a constitutional conundrum there. Now, yeah, that, to that point, uh, from what from what I understand, uh, in the Ohio Constitution, it says that when conflicting initiatives pass, the one with the most votes wins. That could be. And so that it might come down because I've, I've looked at some Although polling. Although I'd have to look that up. Where'd, where'd, you, where'd you hear that? Uh, I, I, read in, I read something on it from a political scientist at Kent State who was writing on it. So uh, okay. uh, I think that's kind of interesting because polling right now indicates that majorities are in favor of both of these measures, suggesting that right. they may not exactly – well, no, it's not. I was going to say suggesting they don't exactly – aren't exactly clear on what they mean, but they might be. Because, for instance, I'm in favor of legalization, but I hate the monopoly thing. And so uh, when my ballot comes in, I'll probably, because uh, I'm I'm doing the absentee thing, I'll probably right. end up kind of holding my nose and voting for it. I've, you know, but uh, you, you, I imagine, will do the opposite, not hold your nose and vote, vote against it. I no, I, yeah, I will vote against it. Um, so we'll cancel each other out, essentially. Yeah. Uh, Maybe we could just agree not to vote and save ourselves the time and hassle. I don't know. That's well, you know. Here's the the thing. I mean, I, I can go on for a while. Of my my bigger problem, as you know, look, I'm not, I'm I'm the the conservative, uh, you know, black hat kind of guy here on on the show. But, uh, I, you know, I've got sort of something of some libertarian leanings. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. Uh, quite honestly, I think a lot of uh, is is marijuana uh, legalization good or bad. If you remember, William F. Buckley was was a proponent of, right. of marijuana legal, legalization. Um, 
you know, I, I, I or, or maybe we'll call it decriminalization. I, I think there are plenty of too many people in the criminal justice system on drug possession, drug use charges. Uh, so, yeah, I've got issues with that. The bigger problem that I have is changing the Ohio Constitution. And this is what what troubles me is that me too. this has been a problem, not just in Ohio. California is probably the most notorious for it. Um, but, uh, you know, look, if you want to pass a law by initiative, there's a process to do that. Um, uh, but uh, to simply keep amending the Constitution to write in special protections for special private right. interests. And and we did this with uh, gambling a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, and it's a similar situation where there was a monopoly situation. We, we have a couple different casinos could be run by a couple different uh, big players. And that is in our enshrined in our constitution. Uh, and I, I, I bristle at the idea of constitutions being the place to make policy. like Absolutely. That. And so. I, I think it's that again, the reason I guess I'm ultimately in favor it. I think the, the good or the positives of legalization out, want to smoke some weed. outweigh that. Well, for a lot of reasons, the good I think outweighs that. But, uh, but, but yeah, I think that is really troubling. Though I also think that if they'd done it in some other way, they wouldn't have gotten the backing to get the to get the measure to the point where it could have been voted on. So, yeah, it's 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 not my not my favorite way of putting it. I think it. My I'm gonna, my prediction is that it will narrowly pass, but then there's going to be a, both of them are going to pass, and then there's going to be a ton of litigation, and God knows what's going to happen at that point. So, could be. Okay, no, I think I think um, I I will predict the opposite. I predict uh, issue two passes and issue three fails. Okay, well we'll find out in a little more than a couple of weeks. Yep. You know, pork's always. I know we're running a little short of time, but I wanted to mention that the the topic of pork in politics is uh you know comes up a lot, right? Um, but not usually in the way it's come up recently. Uh, you a lot of folks might not have heard of this, but at the beginning of the fiscal year for the government, which started October 1st, of course, the Bureau of Prisons started a new policy. They uh, stopped serving pork products in any of any federal prisons. And I'd, uh, I'd say that's an Eighth Amendment problem, but go you ahead. Know, I mean, absolutely. Well, what they claimed was that they did an annual survey of inmates' food preferences and that inmates were very anti-pork. And so as a result, they dropped bacon, pork chops, sausages from their menu, but they kept pork roast for some odd reason. And <laughs> right there, that seems odd to me because I, I, my, my thinking, somebody or a majority of prisoners said, well, you know, we like pork roast, but no, that bacon, we don't. That just doesn't exactly. seem bacon. Who doesn't like bacon? I mean, I don't eat pork, but I love bacon, at least the theory of bacon. The idea, just thinking about it now is making me kind of hungry for bacon. But the point being is that this seems suspicious, not just to me, but to Charles uh, Grassley, of a senator from Iowa, uh, mm -hmm. who, supported by the chicken and beef industries, decided that he needed to right this wrong, to correct this injustice. But notably, he's supported by the chicken and beef industries. You'd think if anybody would benefit from from the pork pork prohibition, it would be the chicken and beef. Industry. Yes, actually, you're right. I I misspoke. The chicken and beef industries were all for this, and so oh, okay. Senator Grassley boldly and courageously took on the chicken and beef industries. How about oh, that? Okay. So, right. um, okay. and after this pressure, I guess the the uh, uh, the bureau of prisons folded, and they are now again going to serve pork in prisons. I don't know if that's going to be 
bacon or just pork roast. Uh, uh, upon further investigation, it was suggested by at least one spokesperson for uh, the federal prisons that, well, you know, it is kind of expensive to serve this stuff. And so I think that was the real reason, because the idea that anyone wouldn't want bacon if given a choice, especially when they're behind bars, I think bacon might be the only thing that would get me through. That could be. So I'm just, I'm just, I was just happy to see that we can, you know, report that uh, for all that the awful be. things. I, I'm, uh, I believe in uh, prison mainly. So uh, I think for all the awful things that go on in our prisons, at least we can say they get to eat bacon. Absolutely. So there's something absolutely. to that. Okay. And well, my last little, my last little goofy story of the day, and ask yeah. people, especially if you're in Ohio, to look this up, relating to issue three. Uh, they've adopted uh, the, this is the ProPot folks have created this mascot. Uh, called Buddy. Buddy. Uh, he's and he's this like marijuana superhero. Ooh, no kidding. What? What's um, it? Was he like a? Is he like a like a big joint or what? What Buddy look like? Yes. Here? Yes. Essentially, he looks really? sort of like a big joint, like a marijuana bud for a head. Ah, uh, okay, white I get it. Costume and and green letters, and the thing is like scary as hell. Oh yeah, <laughs> I can only imagine this, this thing. Uh, um, and people will. I mean, most people are saying this is what's going to kill issue three is Buddy, um, and it, it just looks like some sort of sort of pot fuse, pot infused nightmare. Uh, they're like, "Whoa, man, we got to You know, it's. I think that maybe the so, the creative team that uh, decided on Buddy might have uh, might have had a few brownies or something like that at, before at, they at actually. At least, at least. Gotcha. Uh, yes, it's it's bizarre looking. It's it's scary. It's creepy. Um, and there was a guy dressed up as Buddy, sort of around the state house, and people like following him around and wow. so forth. Um, but we can put that on the, the website for oh, people definitely. to take a look at Buddy and, and see what they think and make up their own minds. Yeah, I think we'll definitely have to do that. Okay, well, uh, that's about all we have time for for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, or criticisms, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.